Good morning and welcome to another edition of the Occupied Thoughts podcast, a podcast of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. My name is Lara Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and I'm very pleased to welcome this morning on June 16th, by the way, uh, to have with me Rania Batris, uh, coming to us from Dallas, Texas. Rania is a political policy and advocacy strategist with over two decades of experience. And Rania and I were actually together on a podcast or on a webinar recently looking at polling on Israel-Palestine. You can find that on the website of the Foundation for Middle East Peace or the Foundation for the Middle East, for the website for the Middle East Institute. I highly recommend that. So coming out of that webinar, I thought this is a woman I want to talk to more and learn from. So Rania, welcome. Thanks for joining me this morning. Thank and you so much for first, having me. It's a pleasure. First, can I ask you to introduce yourself to our audience? I am just learning about your work and I'm thinking for a lot of people, this will be their first introduction to you as well. So if you could just jump in with a brief introduction, that would be great. Absolutely. So um, as, as you mentioned, I've been in this, in this world uh, of politics and advocacy for about 21 years and that's included everything from managing campaigns to advising campaigns. Um, I was Bernie Sanders deputy campaign manager in 2016, uh, but have done this work across the country uh, for such a long time at every level. I mean, city council all the way through presidential uh, elections, I think. It's it last cycle maybe was my sixth presidential cycle. It's just been it's been a long, long time going. Um, but it's it's really been kind of my life's mission. Uh, I, I have joked it's it was sort of written in the stars as a first generation Palestinian American that justice would be my work, uh, and and it is. And I've really fought hard for all of those years to break open the silos that exist between electoral politics and policy and advocacy and help people to understand that these things are not exclusive from one another. They cannot be decoupled. In fact, it's necessary that they all come together. And so that has truly been my mission and my life's work personally and professionally. And, and that's what's really brought me here to where I am today. Wonderful. And I'll let people know that we are also posting alongside this podcast. You can find um, a link to Rania's website and also to an article that she wrote recently um, about her family experience as a Palestinian, um, which is really quite, quite moving. Um, I want to dig right in from that background, which you just laid out, which is really rich. Can you talk based on your firsthand experience with campaigns and political organizing, can you talk about what's happening at the grassroots level in the U.S. today with respect to activism and awareness around Palestine? What has suddenly changed or what has slowly changed in the political landscape, which is opening the door for what seems to be a new kind of discourse and is actually opening the door for new kinds of people to be elected to Congress? I, I do think that it might feel like it happened quickly, but the truth is my entire, the majority of my career was, was not, did not reflect where we are today. Um, and and it's, it's devastating and exciting all at the same time because I have had, I've been having these fights and debates with my own candidates over the years, uh, over and over and over again, where 
you know, everything from the, the required APAC sign-on letter that was just atrocious um, and, and helping people to understand what the history is and giving them my, per I mean, I remember the stories from my, my grandmothers um, from a very young age and really sort of humanizing the impact of what they're doing. It's not just signing on to a letter. It does have an impact and just continues to sort of feed the beast, you know, um, of money and power in, in politics and the development of policy. So it's been a struggle for a very long time. Um, and it has only recently started to change. When I say recently, we've sort of, we've seen a a transition over the last handful of years, you know, where it's it's gotten um, less scary, maybe to speak up in favor of Palestinian rights and self determination and just overall humanity. And I will say, I have a lot of things to say about about Bernie Sanders, who I still love and work closely with on a number of things. Um, but I will give credit where credit is due here he sort of kicked open that door uh, of making it not only okay, but something that people all of a sudden paid attention to. Uh, and I, I, it wasn't just him, there have been organizers and people that you and I both know and love who've been working on this for, for just decades and decades. And um, I do think he sort of helped sort of open that door. And the other thing that came about from it is the understanding of the intersection of all of these fights for justice, whether we're talking about black self-determination or native sovereignty or, uh, you know, just justice issue, climate justice, all of these different things really come very easily crashing together in a very poignant way that I don't feel like necessarily was recognized even a few years ago. And so, and that does, I, you've heard me, you heard me talk about this on the webinar that we did together, that it really is young people, I feel like who are continuing to lead that charge. And I think this last election cycle was the first cycle where there were more um, young people of voting age than boomers. And, and that is not a small thing. I mean, there's still a lot of work to do on turnout and all of those kinds of things. And, and as we've seen across the country, there are voter suppression efforts happening rapidly. It's devastating, but, but those, those young people are fearless. They have no loyalty to any party or, or anything uh, of that nature. They are really focused on justice and people and planet first. And, uh, and it really has made a, a huge, huge difference. I love when you say that the people and planet, that was what stuck with me um, when I heard you speak the first time, that you have a generation thinking about it in those terms, which are terms that really are, I think, impossible for traditional political forces to even grapple with. It's just a different way of imagining politics, um, of engaging. Um, that's all, there's a lot of good news in what you just said. The, the flip side um, is the attacks that we're seeing on the new generation of elected officials. Yes. And, and here we are speaking particularly of women of color and Muslims. And here we are speaking particularly about Ilhan Omar from Minnesota and Rashida Tlaib from, from Michigan. 
um, who have been facing um, just unrelenting attacks pretty much since they entered office with every word they say that touches even peripherally on Israel put under a microscope and, 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 and parsed as evidence um, of, of evil anti-Semitism, support for terror, all of that. Yeah. And that mirrors this kind of vilification that we've been seeing in the grassroots for years. And Linda Sarsour is obviously the, the, the textbook example, but also targeting any kind of grassroots movements that align with Palestinian rights. So BLM, Dream Defenders, um, the Women's March, et cetera. So I've got a compound question. <laughs> How is what we're seeing today different or the same from what we saw in the past where anyone who touched the Palestinian issue is you know, there's an effort to make them radioactive. And, and how does it fit into the, these attacks? How do these attacks fit into the broader sort of mosaic or intersection of issues that have become the key political and partisan identifiers today? Um, between, between progressives or Democrats or Republicans, we're talking about race and BLM, immigration, Islamophobia, terrorism, national security. And last, culture compound question, how does it figure into this increasingly zero sum partisan climate within the United States as we're looking at so far the very poor, I want to say inability, but the poor performance of progressives in defending their own? It's it, the, all very wonderful questions and I'm going to try to hit them off. I forget anything you'll have to let me know, but I think from a, from a very structural, structural perspective, you're exactly right. The attacks on women of color are so blatant. It's, it's, it's almost unreal because it's not surprising just because we've seen it for so many generations and it's not anything new, but we keep, I sort of keep having these moments of, aren't we past this yet? We're not is the, as, as uh, evidenced by all of these incoming attacks, like you said on yes, Rashida Tlaib and yes, Ilhan Omar, but also Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Ayanna Presley, who I love Ayanna Presley, but she's not like, a bastion of progressivism on a lot of different things. She's wonderful and she's fantastic and she is a true champion of justice, but it's not as though she's as, has been as outspoken, um, but she's still, she's still on the list. And it's so, uh, it's just wild. Say, it's just to interject. So what, if for people who are listening, uh, what Rania is referring to is not only do we have the attacks on Ilhan and Mashida, but this week we have a letter specifically naming four members of Congress for condemnation and censure for their anti-Israel statements. And there's a list of statements which are not particularly anti-Israel and are certainly not anti-Semitic. And those are the four people listed, nobody else. Yes, which, and this brings me to the sort of the next part of my point that is both wonderful to see the, I've never seen so many members of Congress speak up ever. Um, but also, again, the blatant way in which people are targeting women of color. And I loved that Mark Pocan, I think he was one of the first ones to say, let me just point out that I said exactly the same thing as my colleague in Ilhan Omar. And somehow I have not received these attacks that she's receiving. And, you know, he's, of course, being very sarcastic about it, like the somehow. Um, but it, so it, it, it's... 
it's not new. It's not surprising. We've seen this for just so long where when any, uh, when there's any sort of groundswell of empathy or sympathy or outspokenness on behalf of Palestinians, the propaganda machine swoops in in full force. And like I said, we've just seen it over and over and over again. And this time is no different uh, from that perspective. What is different is the willingness to call it out. Uh, and that doesn't mean it doesn't stop the letters and the the demands for censure and, and removal of Il and this is a, another thing that's happened recently. They want to remove Ilhan from her committee assignments for for literally speaking the truth, for speaking about facts. Uh, and it's it's really incredible, and it, it's also upsetting because these are the same people who claim to be such patriots and such champions of, of truth and democracy and the American way and all of these things. And I mean, isn't that sort of foundational to who we are supposed to be as a country is to be able to speak these truths. And what we're seeing is for some people, that's just, just not the case. Bridge too far. <laughs> so um, you're, and now I, I want to, I don't want to miss any of the parts of your questions. I think you uh, tell me again, <laughs> help me out here. So, I mean, I'm interested in, I mean, I've, I've talked to people like Jim Zogby about this for, for years. How, how, how are these attacks different or are they not different from what we've seen in the past where anyone who showed any sympathy or solidarity with the Palestinians? I mean, certainly we've seen political figures, you know, face, you know, serious attacks for this in the past. Is it different? But also, I mean, what's interesting to me, there was a, a line someone tweeted out, Asal Rad tweeted out this week, Ilhan Omar has gotten more backlash for asking how to hold war criminals accountable than the yes. war criminals get for committing atrocities. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. There seems, to, and, and, you know, to what extent, and maybe, I, I don't know if this thing you can answer, to what extent are these attacks genuinely about people and I, I, from both sides of the aisle? Because the attacks are coming from both sides of the aisle. Some defense is coming from one side of the aisle. Not, I think, a ton of it, but some. How much of it is genuinely about what they're saying, as in, we feel this is too critical of Israel, we're uncomfortable, we want to push it back? And how much of it is this has been recognized as a potent political weapon that can be turned against your opponents or as I joke sometimes, it's like a sword you throw amongst your opponents and let them use against each other. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I don't know, I, I'm, not a, I'm not politically engaged the way you are. I'm very curious how it looks from, from your perspective. Well, I think first things first, it is, it, the attack is not necessarily different. What's different is that we actually have elected officials in Congress who are Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar, which is not that has not been the norm and even AOC and Ayanna, you know, there's, and, and we, we have others as well and others coming on their heels. I mean, Corey Bush is just, I absolutely adore that woman. You know, we've got, there's a, there is, there is change coming, not as fast as I'd like to see, but there has been this sort of shift happening in Congress. So that's one thing there is, there is an, a common enemy for folks who want to sort of spread the lies or silence people or the propaganda or whatever. So that, that part of it is different. The, the thing I will say though, is, you know, Ilhan won her reelection overwhelmingly despite massive, massive amounts of money 
dumped into the campaign of her opponent. And all they did was relentlessly attack her. That's all they did. Same thing with Rashida. And so I think what's what's also different is we can go back in in modern history, but go back into history before my career, into my career, and see people who dared to, to say something immediately lose. I mean, that's it. The game over, you know, the packs come in, the uh, the sort of those propaganda groups come in, and then that's it. They're, the, that person's career is over. That is a shift um, that I welcome, obviously, but it's also, you know, devastating that those kinds of things are still, the attempt is still there. And then the amount of money that is spent, and that's what we could spend a whole hour talking about money and politics. We're not going to do that, but the amount of money that's spent to further demonize people for daring to speak the truth is, is I can't help just being a person who's seen so much suffering, um, across the country and around the world, I can't help but just go, that money could be used to actually save lives and, and make people's lives better rather than personal attacks and, and, and you know, the spread of misinformation and disinformation. So, you know, it's, it's, it's there. It's part of the progress that, that we're seeing folks, again, win, win their races despite it all. Um, but that doesn't, doesn't make it any less egregious. I will say I appreciate all that. What what is striking to me on the question of how this is playing in in the sort of political game itself in the elections, looking at like Jamal Bowman, where the amount of money that was poured into that campaign to try, that campaign that race to try to defeat him, mm-hmm. and was poured in by forces who saw him as a threat to status quo policies on Israel. A, it didn't work. He was still elected. That money was wasted. But B, it underscores the fact that this isn't an issue that can be used to just knock someone out, right? That, that his constituents, I mean, I don't say he's automatically going to get reelected, but what it, one would, observing the last race, it would seem that whether or not he's reelected is going to be based on whether or not his constituents like him on the whole range of issues they care about. Mm-hmm. And that this is not like, okay, well, this can be, you know, like with Ilhan yeah. and Rashida, you can't just knock them out because, because exactly. somebody says they're, they're not where that you want them to be. And that's massively important, I will say, and I, I did some work for Jamal and Mondaire Jones and Cory Bush, actually, uh, in the last cycle, and all three of them had that outside money coming in, too, but I think we discussed uh, on that webinar, none of the attacks in those specific cases were necessarily centered around Israel-Palestine, yeah. it was everything else. So that is, that does show a pretty massive shift. In, in their own strategy. And to me, that's progress. That doesn't mean we go home and say, okay, great, you know, we've made progress, we're done. Of course not, but it is progress. Yeah, well, I mean, given what's happening in Congress this week, I mean, we certainly can't say it's time to go home and be done because <laughs> yes. you're, I mean, there's a giant, there's a huge pool of constituents today who are looking at Congress seeing their elected officials um, maligned, slandered, delegitimized um, because they have spoken fact when it comes to Israel-Palestine or, or, or offered views that are on a spectrum that should be certainly acceptable and are being treated as somehow beyond the pale, which is, I mean, 
I would encourage people to look at the fact sheet that was um, released by Congressman Waltz along with his resolution condemning and censuring these four women of color, um, two of whom are Muslim. And I mean, it reads as a, here's a great, here's a great summary of really principled positions on Israel-Palestine. He included on that sheet, I don't know if you saw a tweet by AOC condemning anti-Semitism in the Palestinian rights movement. That was included on the sheet, ostensibly because, it, I guess, because it includes a reference to, Palestine, to Israeli human rights violations. Which I you mean, have to wonder, like, did, did he actually, did they read them or did they just like, it's, it's really incredible. It's truly, truly incredible. And sometimes I do have to laugh just so I won't cry because it's so unbelievable. <laughs> or totally unbelievable, but very upsetting. <laughs> I, I guess, I mean, I, I don't want to, I hate asking people the crystal ball questions because I know I hate getting them, but I'm going to ask you anyway. <laughs> so, so turning towards where this goes, how, how do you see these dynamics playing out in the future? Um, you know, I, in 2016, before I knew you, I watched what was happening with the Bernie campaign and I thought this is fascinating for years. I met when I was back doing actual government relations, I would meet with members of Congress and they would say, we agree with you hundred percent, but we can't say that publicly because we would face, you know, this incredible pushback. We, we lose donors. We wouldn't be able to fundraise, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, we, and we would lose voters. And what Bernie showed was not only was this popular in terms of, you know, people were excited about it, but he was actually able to fundraise on it. It, it completely just burst the whole mythology around don't touch Israel, Palestine which of course is gonna depend race to race, let's be honest. But you know what we've seen from 2016 is a shift in who's being elected and how this issue is being dealt with. Where do you see that going? Do you, do you anticipate it getting more exciting and more interesting and more opportunities? And, and I guess also, where do you see this going as a, forget the, I know you said they're mixed together, that was your starting point. Where does this go in the grassroots, which doesn't, you know, play by the rules imposed for so many years by both parties, as well as by outside lobby groups. And I think you sort of already hit the nail on the head there. It's the other thing that Bernie did was show that you don't need that outside money to, to make an impact, to run a, a real campaign, to, to, uh, to be taken seriously. And that was new. And we're seeing it all across the country now, even with down ballot races, which I remember in 2016 thinking like, this is so fantastic, but this is a presidential race, it's different. And I was thrilled to be proven wrong because we are seeing House and Senate races, even further down ballot races who are able to raise this grassroots money from all over the country. Does that mean that we're matching the establishment dollar for dollar? No, it doesn't, but it does still mean that we can run a real campaign without all of that outside influence. And I don't care what anybody says, if you're taking that money, they expect something, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, um, so that's hugely, hugely important in all of this. And like you said, the grassroots here is, they are so um, energized and they just keep moving forward and you can't knock them back. I mean, as much as folks have tried, uh, across a whole host of issues, Israel Palestine being included, they cannot. Uh, they they as hard as some have tried, they will not be silenced, and it is incredible. They're fearless. They they have so much energy. Thank goodness, because I got to tell you, I'm a little tired. Um, so, and I often I I often say, it's I really 
I hate saying that young people make me hopeful because I do feel like it's a cop out for some people to, to sit back and be like, young folks got it. And, and that's not fair either, but they really, really do make me hopeful and give me courage to just keep going because they're not going anywhere and they need us to back them up. Right. They need, I'm, I've been around, um, this work and these folks for a very long time. And oftentimes I feel like my, my role with young people is just even just making introductions, even just providing them any advice or anything like that, but not standing in the way of it, just sort of being an asset to them whenever I can be. And I know a lot of folks of, of our generation feel that way too, uh, but really it, it, that's what I see happening and continuing to happen. The grassroots isn't going anywhere. And if anything, they're just getting bigger and bolder and, and more unapologetic, which, which is necessary because we've, folks have been scared into submission for so long. And so understanding that there is energy and, and a lot of those young people are voters now. And a lot of those young people are those five or $10 a month donors that adds up nationwide to make a difference. And so, you know, as try as they may, and they are, we're seeing it again, the propaganda machine is churning hard. It's, they're, they're so much more savvy than I feel like I was at their age or we were at their age. Uh, and so just the, that's, that's what I see. And it's very exciting. And I, I am somewhat jaded after doing this political work for so long, but I still see, um, I still see that that hope and promise and 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 they're they're just not letting up. I hate to tell you, you don't sound jaded at all, actually. You sound quite quite inspirational. Um, I actually want to ask you one more question. I lied because I have five more minutes. You have a hard stop, I know, in five minutes. What about the the connections between the different grassroots issues? I think there's a lot of people who who are surprised to see that Palestinian rights activism, there's domestic Palestinian rights activism in states. It's not being led or directed by people on the ground anywhere else. It's domestic. And the intersections that it has, particularly with Black Lives Matter. Can you just, as a final point, talk about that and what that portends for the future? Yeah, I, I actually think it's quite beautiful. Um, I, I'm part of a coalition that's organizing uh, around a reparations bill in Congress for the effects of slavery in this country. Um, the core coalition is made up of really incredible justice groups. I'm the only non-Black person in that coalition. And we sometimes joke that they let me in because I'm Palestinian, but it's really, it's not even a joke. You know, they, it's, it is a direct recognition. And some of the folks in this coalition have worked for decades on Palestinian rights and sovereignty. And so there is such a, there's such an understanding of our in, interconnectivity and the similarity in our struggles. Um, my firm recently did the, the PR for the Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial in Tulsa. And, you know, it was of course on the heels of everything that was happening back home and, and my column came out and so many of the people that I was in community with, including the survivors and descendants of this atrocity carried out by our, by our country. I mean, the state of Oklahoma was, was complicit here. Um, 
were just hugging me and telling me that they were with me and they saw me and that we were in it together and we weren't going to, we weren't going to give up. I wasn't going to give up on fighting for them and they're not going to give up and fighting for me and my family and, and our people. And it was so beautiful. I'm not generally a crier. I mean, I felt like I was in tears the whole week because it was like, oh my gosh, I felt so seen. And, and that happens a lot with, I, I had the honor of helping to get Deb Holland, the, the nomination and the confirmation, and we now call her secretary Holland. And that was massively important. And even that coalition of amazing native people, mostly native women who were just fighting so hard to see this change brought about. And it's the same thing. There's such a recognition of how uh, we're, we really are in this together. And I don't see that letting up either. And that's also, I mean, it's so powerful. It's just so powerful. Yeah, I'm going to say again, you don't sound jaded at all. You sound incredibly <laughs> inspiring. All right, you're hitting a hard stop. Thank you. We're going to have to end here. I wish we could go on for another hour. I'm going to try to get you to come back. Um, thank you, Rania, for joining me today. And thanks for sharing your insights with the Foundation for Middle East Peace and our listeners. There is so much more to unpack. Um, hopefully, you can do that again soon. I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in and remind people to subscribe to the Occupied Thought podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud so you don't miss anything. We're adding new content every single week. And um, you can find more about our podcasts and watch the video if you want um, on our website, www.fmep.org. So with that, I am Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, thanking Rania Batris and signing off now until our next episode of Occupied Thoughts. <laughs>